I invite you to turn with your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, page number 973 in the Red Pew Bible, number 973, or Luke 2, whichever translation is in your lap, and you can make your way there. So Luke 2, verse 21 to 38. Verse 21 says, At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus and given the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons... Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84 she did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayers night and day and coming up at the very hour she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem so what was your favorite Christmas gift this season would it be okay if I share with you what I enjoyed most this Christmas season? It's actually this calligraphy. This calligraphy was, actually it was from my mother-in-law's home. I first noticed it when I was dating Abby over 20 years ago. Boy, over 25 years ago. And uh, this calligraphy says, your heavenly father is too good to be unkind and too wise to make mistakes. Now, it's attributed to Robert T. Ketchum, who was the founder of the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches, primarily a denomination in the North. But as I 
reflected upon this as I would come to visit Abby. And after we moved, uh, we were married, we would visit them in Lebanon County. And it would hang in the guest room of where we would stay. And uh, it may not mean a whole lot to you. I mean, you might say, well, that's a beautiful statement of how our Heavenly Father is. But to me, it's filled with, with a fuller meaning. Because as I became acquainted with Abby's family, I began to learn about their family struggles through the years and trials of faith. My mother-in-law had been a widow at the age of 41, and she was left with teenage boys and two young daughters. And that particularly is a reason why this wall art means so much to me, is that when I look at this, I envision the struggles that my mother-in-law experienced to remain faithful to her Savior in the midst of difficulty. To live into your 80s. Can you imagine? Some of us are in our 80s. And you don't have to imagine. But those of you who have lived into your 80s, you've known your fair share of grief. And grief is a response to the loss of someone for whom a bond of love and connection has been made. And to release yourself from that pulls out of our hearts a significant amount of grief. Moses said in Psalm 90, verse 10, he said, The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble, and they are soon gone and we fly away. I don't know if you've had a sit-down conversation with someone in their 90s, but I have had these conversations, and people have said to me, I don't know why God has let me live so long. Have you ever heard someone in their later years say that to you? Now, this is the weight. This is the weight of mortality speaking, but it also, there's something also hopeful in these words. That God will give to them an explanation in time for why he has allowed them to persist as long as they have. God has reasons that he has not yet revealed, but yet he will reveal these to you. Very rarely does God reveal why he lengthens one's life and why he shortens the life of another. We would all like to know that answer. But witness in this passage two elderly people whose lives were extended so that they might see Jesus. What a gift. What a gift. All the toils and trials of their life, and yet they can hold the Son of God in their hands. Simeon is specifically told a reason for his persistence that he would persist until he saw the Messiah's birth. Now, Anna follows in quickly, and she begins to give thanks to God for the birth of the Messiah. And I would say, what an answer to why God has allowed them to live so long. I think another variation on that question might be these words. What should I be doing with my life? And I would like to say that if we wait for angels to stop and to tell us what we should be doing... We're going to be disappointed. Instead, I'd encourage you to do what Mary and Joseph do. 
Mary and Joseph are at the early start of their life. They're a young couple who have not lived into their 80s yet. But what they do in these verses are the kinds of behaviors, the kinds of rituals that Simeon and Anna have done for years. They have been faithful to God's law in the midst of the trials, and they have found that God has led them each step of the way. There is almost a script for their life that is found in the law that if they put themselves underneath of it, they will find themselves exactly where God wants them to be. And in time, they also have found what my mother-in-law has found. And what you can find is the truth that your Heavenly Father is too good to be unkind and too wise to make mistakes. The Lord provides to us a general pattern in His Word of how to live our faith in a fallen world. He invites us to trust Him and to put ourselves underneath of His Word and follow it like a script for our lives. And I want to look at four rituals that are given by example. They're followed by script, if you will, by Mary and Joseph. And these have been superseded ultimately in Jesus Christ. But they have a profound significance to us because they find fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And as we walk through these four rituals, we'll also see that there are still some prophecies that are still in play that keeps us hopeful of the goodness of God and the wisdom of God to, to be there for us, and someday we shall also see Jesus. These elderly saints saw Jesus and held him in their arms. God bless you to persevere and one day you too shall see Jesus if you faint not. And so I encourage you to listen to these verses this morning. Follow with me the four rituals that have been superseded by Jesus. These rituals were designed to prepare for the day in which the Messiah would come and fulfill the intentions of God's law. Now these four rituals that we're going to look at are circumcision, purification, uh, dedication, we're going to see uh, ransom, we're going to see uh, and, uh, bl and, and the blessings of God that are requested. And so the intentions I want you to look at that exist underneath of these rituals is that we would love God supremely and that we would also love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, all of the rituals of the Old Testament as laborious as they may seem, they were designed to, to provide a framework for God's people that they might potentially encounter the living God. Now, the rituals prescribed in the law were never a replacement for the intention of God's law. Those are two different things. God's intent has always been that we would love God and our neighbor as ourselves. There is a script and pattern and forming of the nation, and there is the desire that then they would call out with their hearts to say, Lord, 
I want to love you more, and I want to love my neighbor as I ought to love. And the intention is what Jesus Christ purchased for us in his redemption. Christ purchased us the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we might love God and our neighbor as ourselves. So that the the rituals could fall away, but God's intention of the law would still remain. That we would be a people that would love and that the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon us. Romans 5, 5 says that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We're going to go into some of these rituals, but I want, I want you to think of them as like a form. Like, you have forms, for example, if you're in the construction world, you, you have forms where you set up forms and you can pour in concrete and you can give it shape. The form is the external, but the shape, the substance on the inside is the love of God. And so when God pours into our hearts, he's giving us himself. He's giving us our, himself and he pours the Holy Spirit into us so that we might be liberated to do the intentions of the law. Now, does this mean that when we look at these things, in just a moment, just be, par- be patient with me here, as we look at these four rituals, does this mean that we're supposed to go back and, like, have tassels on our clothing? Is this, you know, are we supposed to start eating kosher? Because I'm looking at these laws this, e- this morning. Do I have to, you know, do we celebrate the Passover in all of its details? No, we don't. But do we need to bother ourselves with understanding the rituals that are in the Old Testament? Yes, we do. We do need to bother ourselves to understand them because they were designed to teach us about the holiness of God, our sin natures, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we look at these, I want us to see the patterns and then learn how the Spirit of God moves within our hearts and lives. Okay, that's enough set up. Let's look at the first one this morning. Verse 21, we're going to look at the first ritual. It says, and at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, and the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Circumcision occurred on day eight within the Jewish law. But it might be surprising to you to note that circumcision predated the Mosaic law. It was not the exclusive practice of the Jews either. Uh, For example, in Egypt, the priestly class of, of priests within Egypt, pagan priests, practiced circumcision. And the removal of a foreskin seems maybe to have been a symbol of separation, of of setting this class of people apart as different and to be devoted to the service of those gods. That may sound strange to you to realize that it wasn't just a Jewish ordinance, but this was something that had been practiced in other nations. And so it seems to us that as you look at Abraham hearing from God, that he had to undertake this ritual of circumcision, that he was familiar with it already. He understood 
that it was a ritual that demonstrated that he was to be separated and devoted unto God who called him to be faithful to his covenant. Abraham had been called into a special relationship with God and he was being called to reorient his whole life to be devoted to God, to God who called him. So when the law was handed down to Moses, circumcision was stipulated to occur on all babies, males, on the eighth day. They were to be circumcised. Now, uh, this gives me all kinds of questions. I have a couple of questions, and the first is, why incorporate this into the law? In Egypt, the pagan priests were circumcised to symbolize their dedication to the gods. Yahweh here signals that this is not just going to be for the priesthood, but this was going to be something that would be for all people in the nation of Israel. In other words, you weren't just going to have a priestly class that was dedicated to me. In fact, this whole nation of Israel is going to be a kingdom of priests. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 to 6, we read this. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, the whole nation was going to be set apart from all the other nations to be devoted unto God. I have a second question. Why men? Well, this was to signal to Israel that men were to lead their families to be devoted covenant partners to God. This was the ideal. For example, Joshua, when he uh, said famously, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. God calls men to lead in devotion and to lead their families in the pursuit of holiness and dedication to God. And the ritual of circumcision was designed to teach Israel that God's holiness deserves and, de and demands the entirety of devotion, even from conception. But that's a problem. Because unless you have been conceived like Jesus by the Holy Spirit, you have within you this problem called sin nature that fights against you in your desire to be devoted unto the Lord. And we'll get to that in a moment as the cure for that. Now, why Jesus? Now, this strikes me as I read this. Baby Jesus didn't have a sin nature. Why did he need circumcision? And Paul gives us the answer to this in Galatians 4. He says, Christ was made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. In other words, he humbled himself and identified with sinners so that he could be their savior. Now, Calvin also helpfully describes it this way. He said, in this way, not only was bondage of the law abolished by him, but the shadow of the ceremony applied to his body, that is to Jesus' body, that it might shortly, 
afterwards come to an end. Jesus took the form of circumcision upon his body so that he could then put it away forever. It's not something that's necessary, and it has come to an end. It has come to an end for those who, like Jesus, are conceived by the Holy Spirit. If you've been born again, you've been given a devotion to God by the gift of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. You're now a part of a spiritual house of priests, and you join the body of Christ, the church. You're a new creation in Christ, and you demonstrate this by entering covenant with a local assembly, and you do so through baptism and demonstration of your identity in Christ by identifying with his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So circumcision is not something that we are required to carry into this era because Christ has fulfilled it. But the devotedness, the devotedness is something that we all need. And that is something that has been gifted to us through the circumcision of the heart. The Holy Spirit dwells within us and gives us the attitude of love and devotion to follow our Heavenly Father. There is another ritual here that's going on that occurs on day 40. Day 40, you see in verse 22, uh, we read, and when the time came for their purification, that's Luke's kind of shorthand way of saying, you know, after the eighth day, and then we had 30 uh, some days later, we have now the day in which they come to the temple for purification. According to the law, when a male child was born, a woman was to go to the sanctuary and offer a lamb. It was on the 40th day. It was described as purification. There was also purification if a female child was born, and um, that occurred 66 days afterwards. Now, if the family was poor, instead of a lamb, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons would do. That would be sufficient. And the law had put that in place so that all could participate in this. And the law of purification was not designed to denigrate women. Rather, it was designed to place before the eyes of everyone that in the process of conception, our corrupt sin nature is carried forward another generation. It's passed down through the seed of men through women. The child comes from its mother. It's unclean and polluted even in its birth. So much so that the mother herself becomes defiled in the process of childbearing. And the purification is an indication that there is taint of sin in every conception. To be clear, to conceive children in the womb by a married man and woman is not in itself sinful. Rather, it is as David says in Psalm 51, David said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. His mother did not 
participate in a sinful act that created this conception, what David is saying is that I was so thoroughly tainted with sin at the moment of my conception. I inherited my sin nature that came to me all the way from Adam. And the fountain is so deep and so abundant that it contaminates and it overflows what otherwise would be pure. And the truth is that every child that is born is in need of the purification of the Holy Spirit. Every child, except who? Every, every child except Jesus. Jesus was already pure by the Holy Spirit when Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. And yet faithful they were. They might have been able to say, this doesn't apply to me. I don't have to go through this process of purification. My child was born to the Holy Spirit. But no, they don't. Instead, they say, I will submit myself to the law as it provides for me direction in my parenting. They were faithful, and they followed the law and sought purification for Mary through the sacrifice of pigeons or turtle dove. Now, there's another ritual here in verse 23 that's uh, referred to. In verse 23, it says, um, As it is written, In the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And so they went to Jerusalem to pre present him to the Lord. This is a payment of the firstborn ransom. Of a ransom. Because every male which opens the womb is going to be called holy to the Lord. Now this comes back, goes all the way back to the Passover. In which, in which uh, the cost of Israel's redemption was the life of the firstborn of Egypt. Now the law specifically said that because Israel was redeemed at such a cost of human life that every firstborn in Israel forever afterward would be dedicated and owned by God. Now every firstborn even of animal had to be sacrificed, but men who were firstborn could be redeemed through purchase and children could be redeemable through another substitutionary cost. That cost would be applied, and this cost would spare the firstborn. Numbers 18 uh, set this cost at five shekels of silver. Do you carry shekels in your pocket? It might feel like we have shekels these days. But our currency conversion, that's set to about approximately $40 today. And from the greatest to the least, God was communicating to Israel that from the, the greatest to the least, he was going to be the redeemer for them all. And he has a right to own them. And yet he made provision that they could buy their children back from the potential of sacrifice. I think this is where Paul gets his, his admonition to the Corinthians 
in 1 Corinthians 6, we quote these verses sometimes to ourselves at the end of a communion service or, or whatnot. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You were not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You were bought with a price. You were bought with an infinite price. And in all of these rituals, there is this, this indication that your sin is so terribly corruptive that you need to be purchased. You need to be redeemed. And that little baby is the supreme price. Again, in, other, in great ways, this child was not needing to be redeemed. But yet he would be the redeemer for all of the world. There's a fourth ritual here that is a little bit less um, overtly referred to in the flow of events as Mary and Joseph come forward. And that is the blessing of children. The blessing of children. It was very customary for the priesthood to speak a divine word of blessing upon the congregation of Israel. It was expected, for example, when Zechariah went into the temple and he encountered that angel, if he had not encountered that angel, he was expected upon his return out of the temple to bless the congregation who were outside praying as he was putting incense uh, on the altar. And so these blessings that the priesthood would, would offer to the congregation were very general. They were not specific to individuals. But every child in the Abrahamic covenant, God had a very special disposition towards them. Every newborn child had the right of receiving the Abrahamic blessing being spoken over top of them. In fact, this would have typically been done in the synagogues scattered throughout, and the rabbis would say these prayers of blessing over top of children as they were brought to the synagogue after their, after their birth and purification process. We know this to be the case for parents brought young children to the rabbi of Nazareth. There were children that their parents had desired their children to be set upon his knee and to, to, that he would lay his hands upon them and, and bless them. Coming to the busy temple, the question is, would this even have been something that would have been considered? And I find here the blessing of Simeon to be so sweet. Here are two elderly people who have lived faithful lives. Anna, we know specifically, she had been a widow uh, it says after she had been married to her husband for seven years. And the translation that I read covers over this alternative view that she, after becoming a widow, lived for 84 years. It's very possible that she was in her like 104 range. And she was there in the temple living faithfully. And they are rewarded for their faithfulness by seeing this little baby and being able to express a blessing upon the parents. Now, Simeon came that day under the direction of the Holy Spirit, and it was a way of describing God's providence. God was directing all of these events into play. Anna overhears what's happening and joins in with the blessing. And today, 
the blessing of the Father is poured out on all who are born of the Holy Spirit. You are sealed, and if you have been born again, you will be sealed and preserved and blessed, and you will be kept until the day of his appearing. Now, I kind of walked slowly through all of these rituals because what they do is they teach us something about ourselves, that we're sinners who need blessing. We need a Savior. We need redemption. And all these Old Testament rituals have been superseded by Jesus, but God's intention in all of it is that we would love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And in the rituals of faith, as we apply the truths of Scripture, and as we, we, we walk along faithfully through years, we gradually get to a place where we are like Simeon and like Anna. All the rituals of our youth as a young couple of blessing this child and taking him to the rabbi and all of these elements are designed that we would grow old in our faith, that we would grow old old, uh, there was, when, when Abby and I were young newlyweds, we would often say to each other, wouldn't you like just to grow old together? Growing old together, though, is difficult. It's laborious. But in faithful covenant keeping, following the rituals and it's applicable to spiritual life. If we want to grow in our love towards God, we ought to be willing to follow what the scriptures have encouraged us to do as believers. And through the rituals of faith, of, of simple things, of, of reading our scriptures, and of coming into the doors of the church when maybe we don't feel like it. Maybe there's been a lot of trauma in our lives, or maybe there's been a lot of difficulties that we've experienced. Over time, we begin to realize that God is good and that God is wise. And what he allows for us are things that maybe we haven't really wanted, but ultimately, as we're faithful, we begin to learn how to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, in this, in this uh, story, there are prophecies in the midst of the blessings that are given by these two older people. Two prophecies that I believe are still in play, and I'm just briefly mentioned them, but they're important. And the first is that when Jesus came, he would then provide a light of revelation for Gentiles. Verse 32. Uh, you can back up to the start of the blessing in verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, for the glory and for the glory to your people Israel. The light of the world was going to be greater than the light that emanated from the temple. 
the Savior was not just for the Jews, he was for the whole world. Do you recall when Jesus talked to crowds about him, you know, himself being greater than the temple? They were very bewildered by that. In fact, he, he was charged with, with uh, slander and blasphemy when he said, you destroy this, this temple of my body and I will raise it up in three days. Well, a temple limits worship to one location. After the resurrection, Jesus takes residence in believers so that where two or three are gathered, there he is in their midst. There is potential for the worship of God to be scattered throughout the whole world. And I believe that this prophecy is still in play because Jesus is still the light of the world. The light still goes forth. There is also a second aspect that I believe is still in play, and that is that the Messiah is the glory of your people Israel in verse 32. The glory to Israel is Jesus their Messiah if their blindness would be lifted. I say that this is still in play because Paul prophesied in Romans chapter 11, he prophesied, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There is every expectation that once the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, that God's people will see the glory of their Messiah and they will humble themselves and they will see whom they have pierced and they shall mourn over him as the loss of a firstborn son. Both of these prophecies, I believe, are still in play. And God's intention, though, is still in play. God's intention is to bless the dependence of Abraham. See, while the forms of Judaism have been superseded by Christ, the intention of the law still remains. In the same way, the intention of the covenant with Abraham still remains for Israel. See, the Lord provides to us, through the law, general patterns. General patterns. Now, we don't follow the circumcision. We don't have to go to a temple and have a purification after we've done child, uh, done child labor. We don't even have to like redeem a child with, with five shekels of silver. But yet, in all of these patterns, there was established a necessary dependence of Israel upon God. Today, that has not changed. We still are dependent upon God, our Savior. While the forms have changed, the intention of the law is still the same. God has declared that his son be the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. We now are dependent upon him for everything. He is the true temple. He is the one who gives to us his Holy Spirit so that we can love as 
He loves us. These young parents who have in their arms the Messiah are not given a very clear verbal instruction of how to raise this child. Can you imagine having a sinless baby and raising this child? It's almost like every parenting tip that you've ever heard would have been completely wrong. You, like, why wouldn't they have been given a manual for this child? Well, they had. They had been given the word of God. They had been given the Mosaic law. They had a script in how to raise this child. And guess what they're doing? They're doing the script. We have a script in the very word of God that gives us kind of the, the hows of how to live out our life before him. But we have something even better. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit residing within our hearts to give us the intention, which is to love God and to love our neighbors. The law was a guide to Simeon. It was a guide to Anna. And for many years, Anna and Simeon had been following and persisting in obedience to the law. Their spiritual disciplines had been directed. They could get up and just turn to the law of Moses and say, okay, what should I be doing today? And it was all mapped out. Simeon and Anna had very clear, but we still have very clear direction. It's much simpler than, than what they had. And so we have the word of God which teaches us how to love one another and the Messiah came and he gave us a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, which gives us an action plan for how we are to live with others. See, these elderly saints had received a great gift to hold Jesus in their hands. A great gift. But the greatest gift was the peace that they had in knowing that God's goodness was manifested. His wisdom was manifested. And we can have the same gift if we will humble ourselves and put ourselves underneath of the teachings of the Word of God and apply them each and every day. We can also know that whatever trial is brought before us, that God's wisdom and God's goodness to us will never change. And I believe that there is truth that Anna and Simeon understood and knew that their Heavenly Father was too good to be unkind and too wise to make mistakes. This is the greatest gift that we could ever receive is to have that kind of awareness of our Heavenly Father. It's not something that you, you learn immediately as soon as you profess faith in Christ. It is something that comes to you gradually over time as you see God working in your heart and your life. It comes by obedience to the word of God over a lifetime. And as we move into 2024, I want to encourage you, pick up the scriptural disciplines that carry into the New Testament. We have the beauty of having the written word of God 
which gives us something that we can look at and learn and to know and to consider how God has worked throughout the ages. That should frame the way we look at the world. Social media shouldn't frame the way we look at the world. The Word of God should frame how we look at the world. Fox News, CNN shouldn't frame the way we look at the world. If we are rattled by everything that's going on, it may be we've got to get into the Word so that we know that God is good and He is wise. Let God's Word be a light unto your path. You want to know how to lead your family? You can find it in the Word of God. It gives clear direction. Meet with God's people regularly. The scriptures talk about prioritizing the assembly of believers. That's a ritual that over time you will find to become a source of strength for you. I don't want to embarrass Cheryl, but Cheryl cried when she came back to the auditorium after being away for so long. Through years of loving God and loving one another, she has found this to be the place where she longs to be. And so our, you look at the older saints who come every week, who come every week. They come because they have found this place to be where Christ can be found. The Word of God directs us to gather more and more as we see the day of His appearing that's the place where we will find in the word and with God's people and in prayer and in faithful obedience, charitable good works to one another. That's where we will see the hand of God and it will teach us to look forward to the day when we shall see him face to face. Let's pray.